Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some PRISM-related news and announcements. At the Santa Rita Jail in Dublin, California, two dozen inmates are on a hunger strike over inedible food and rising commissary prices. We don't have any other way. Filing grievances doesn't work, striker James Mallett stated. He said the more expensive prices are a burden on inmates' families who put money on their books, allowing them to purchase essentials. Mallet explained that commissary purchases are vital because the food served at Santa Rita isn't edible. Eric Rivera, also incarcerated at Santa Rita, echoed the complaints. The food that we're being served, it's already horrible. There's no seasoning. We find droppings in our food, meaning rat feces. I don't know how long everybody can hold up, but everybody's trying to do the best they can, he said. Alameda County Sheriff's Lieutenant Ray Kelly stated that there is no hunger strike at the jail. The inmates explained that Trinity Services Incorporated, who contracts with the jail, agreed to deposit 40% of the commission from all purchases to the Alameda County Sheriff's Office, raising the prices of essential items between 21% and 68%. In 2019, Oakland attorney Yolanda Huang sued the Alameda County Sheriff's Office over Santa Rita's unsafe food, inadequate medical care, unsanitary lodgings, exorbitant phone call fees, and a climate of retaliatory violence. The district judge, Jacqueline Scott Corley, dismissed the bulk of these claims. The strikers want edible, fresher food, for the sheriff's office to stop profiting from sales, and for the commissary prices to be set through a public process. I just hope the Board of Supervisors, or if there's a court out there, or somebody is just listening, Rivera said, I know we're in jail, but I'm sure we'd still deserve some rights. We should have some sense of human dignity. This week, we share two features dealing with the cunning ways that the carceral system conceals itself and the harm it causes. The first is an account from Adrian Espinoza, who's been on the show before speaking on conditions in the Maricopa County Jail. As a child, Adrian survived the Adobe Mountain School in Arizona. As he demonstrates, this school is actually a euphemism for a juvenile prison. This prison inflicted severe punishment, sexual abuse, an absence of medical health support, and lack of education on its young inmates. Next, we air selections from a presentation moderated by Ruth Wilson Gilmore and featuring James Kilgore, speaking on his new book, Understanding Ecarceration. Speaking from his own experience, he emphasizes that electronic monitoring is another euphemism for the expansion of the carceral net across the globe, enriching corporations and shackling prisoners, often at their own expense, from the U.S. to Palestine to South Africa. Kilgore argues that we must expose the reality of ecarceration and include the struggles of the monitored in the broader horizon of abolition. First, here's Adrian. Content warning for sexual abuse and suicide. We know it as just Adobe or Adobe Mountain. The families and the parents and the people who have been there absolutely never call it Adobe Mountain School because 
uh, we all recognize that that title is just a way to add opaqueness to what really goes on in there and what it's really about. It's about prison. That's what it is. It's a juvenile prison. So that was there from August 2000 to my 18th birthday, April 27, 2002. So about two years. I had spent three months in Mesa's juvenile jail, Southeast Facilities, SEF, before going there, before being transferred for a misdemeanor, attempted possession of drug paraphernalia, which is a class one misdemeanor. And the maximum time for that, for an adult, is six months in county jail and like a $500 fine or something back then. So I did two years for it because of a stipulation that goes on to every inmate's sentence uh, by the court. So I was sentenced with a caveat on the end of my sentence, or until you're 18. I was sentenced to 16 months or until you're 18. Uh, and there are inmates that were there at the time, and probably there now, that are going to go in there at 12, 13, 14, 15 for uh, whatever, and they're going to do three, four, five, six years for something that an adult can only get a one year in jail, county jail for, because of the Arizona law, but what the what legislation decided is to say, yeah, that's okay. It's up to the ADJC staff, Arizona Department of Juvenile Correction, to decide when this inmate gets out. So I go in there, I have six months to do. They decide you have to be a senior level or a junior level, you know, it's like high school levels, to get out. If you're not that level, nope, you're not going in front of the board, the release board or whatever. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I made my senior level once, but it was taken away, and I was dropped down to a sophomore suspended all within five minutes, um, which was unheard of. It takes five months to get that level, and I draw, in five minutes I was none. So it's crazy. It's, that law is still in effect, or until you're 18. So there's a bunch of kids that are being looked over and basically thrown away by society because of a law that's, like, archaic and... It's insane that they even enforce something like that, that they ever enforced it. In my first month there, I found out like what the general feeling of the place was like, which was like just complete freaking corruption, and the staff were just uh, taking advantage of the inmates. There was a, a ton of sexual abuse going on there by the staff, both male and female. And uh, in my first 30 days there, I dealt with that. Cassandra Cross, she was one of the ones that was having like sex with uh, when I was there, the whole 21, 20 months or so, with a handful of inmates, so quite a few of us. I can't remember the YCO's name. Uh, if I heard it, I'd, I'd, admit I'd recognize it in a heartbeat. If I saw her, I'd recognize her in a heartbeat. I know what she looks like, and she's probably in her mid, late 30s. You know, I was 16 at the time. The DOJ did an investigation, and they found out it was all going on, a bunch of uh, rampant sexual abuse. They said that, uh, I think they said some staff were fired, but they ended up letting them off the hook because they said in the report that people can Google it, uh, Austin v. State of Arizona, that's an inmate who filed suit, and the DOJ complaint is mentioned in there, and then they can reference it back and find the history on it. Yeah, they they dismissed the lawsuit because Arizona said, we promised to change. That was enough for them to say, all right, government, we're going to look out for our other government, our little brother, Arizona, and we're going to drop all the, the suit. So the suit was huge, though. It was about not only sexual abuse, about not letting inmates use the restroom, kids use the restroom at night, 
I was in one of those units, Challenge and Hope. I mean, Challenge and Nova didn't have restrooms in the cell. Uh, I still think they still don't, but they leave the cells open now. But at the time, we're locked in for like 10, 12 hours. You can't use a restroom. Or what we did, we use uh, the plastic trash cans, you know, um, that they gave us, a little tiny trash can. You can't wash your hands, can't drink water, nothing, all night. That's how it was for 30 years before the DOJ investigated it, before anyone cared. But it was crazy that they dropped it because the state promised to change. My day-to-day life was uh, maybe a little different from the rest. Um, I had a hard time there, a hard time adjusting when I got there. And then after that, I was labeled as a high-profile inmate, they like to say. I had a hard time there, so uh, I was on special program a lot. I wasn't allowed out. I wasn't allowed to go eat with everybody else. wasn't allowed to go to school. wasn't allowed to go to rec. All that stuff. Yeah, that happened with me a lot. Um, not being able to go to school, rec, to the pool, go out and play baseball. Probably there were stretches where I was on it for a month at a time. That happened about two or three times. Other times where it was a week long, that happened probably ten times when I was there, maybe. And then other other times where it's probably at least two or three times a week where I'm locked down, they wouldn't let me out. And I mean, you're not allowed. You go into the kitchen and you look over your shoulder, bam, you just lost a point. You're not allowed to look around. Like what, I mean, do you want us to be, so you want us to be antisocial lunatics when we get out who don't look over their shoulder and don't look around and don't, don't do fist bumps at the table and don't talk at the table when you're eating. Like that's how it was when I was there. Eat your food. Don't be passing. Like, that's totally antisocial behavior that they're enforcing on us, teaching us to do, making us do that, so that when we get out, we're going to feel really weird in Taco Bell, like, with people around us and, and coming up behind us. And uh, I went through that when I got out. I developed mental health issues when I was there, too, or now I'm, uh, because of specifically what happened in Adobe, I'm classified, diagnosed as seriously mentally ill. I had staff who would actually put hits out on me. People would come up and tell me that were my friend, that were buddies with me. The staff didn't know this, and they say, "Hey, bro, uh, Mr. Barron's told us he'll give us fifty bucks, man, and bring us pizza and stuff if we if we if we jump you." Uh, we're told that because I had insulted Barron's and his family and his kids or whatever, uh, try to hurt him with words, which uh, was a good way to do it. They, that was common. I mean, these guys showed their dirty side really fast. Um, by setting stuff up like that. So I like I learned to fight in a dojo. I knew how to fight. I got in fights with my brothers a little bit, but those were kid fights. I learned how to fight like in Adobe. That's like the maybe one thing, probably the best thing I learned from there that like uh other than that, nothing. They lost all my high school credits. They found I had they had me as listed as earning two and a half credits there. Like what? And I got out and I went back to high school when I was eighteen. Primavera Technical Learning Center it was called now it's called Primavera Online. I was one of like the first students there. Um, they contacted Adobe and said they got two and a half credits. That's it, man. You can't, you're not even nowhere, nowhere near close to graduating. I'm like, what are you, no way, man. That's impossible. I was there for two years almost. I have like 18 credits there and they lost them all. So there's all kinds of kids going through that. So one inmate died when I was there from suicide that I know of. Christopher Camacho, I knew him. He was a, a buddy of mine for the short time that he was on my unit in, in um, Hope Cottage. Uh, then he went over to Freedom Recovery, or the drug recovery program, or whatever, right next door, 15 feet away. And they wouldn't let him out, he said, and he was banging and screaming, he ended up crying, and then he hung himself. I was at Chaplin, I came out, seen a 
um, uh, an ambulance there, and we didn't know what it was for. We found out the next morning. They told us in a big old group, all somber and whatnot, you know, you guys know Christopher Camacho. He died last night. He killed himself. And I immediately, you know, uh, alarm bells went off because I knew him a little bit. I knew what he was going through. I knew he was going through some of the same abuse <clears throat> that I did. And uh, he didn't strike me as somebody who would kill himself, but, I mean, we all have our, our limits. Christopher Camacho deserves another investigation into it with us being interviewed. So, when, to my knowledge, none of us were interviewed about that. No inmates were talked to about that at all. That's, that's, that's a, I mean, that's Investigation 101. We're his peers. We lived with him. We were his roommates. We were play basketball with this kid, you know, and then he kills himself, allegedly. And you guys don't ask us anything? They do the same thing in adult prison, but for kids, that's even, it's even worse. And I think, just think his parents, you know, Chris died, I think he was 14 or 15, and, you know, to them, he's still 14 and 15, and he, they're never going to know what truly happened because whoever it was, Mesa PD or MCSO, did some shoddy investigation. The other one was Kevin Horvath. He died in June or July of 2000, about two or three months after I got out. I don't know what his situation too much. Um, I didn't know him. We were there at the same time, though. There's, I wanted to draw a comparison about the Penn State investigation into a bunch of kids with Larry something Sandusky, where he abused a bunch of kids, you know, 15 to 30 years ago in 2012. Listening to talk radio about that investigation is what prompted me to come forward and tell uh, internal affairs and uh, criminal investigation unit that's the cops of ADJC and, and ADC. In 2014, I finally told them, uh, or 2012 or 14. But I want to draw a comparison is that you've got a bunch of Penn State kids around that uh, Pennsylvania area or predominantly white wealthy kids and they were given like a hundred million dollar lawsuit the dude was you know convicted the coach his 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 partner Joe Paterno was was you know banished from coaching and there was reparations basically is what I'm saying and that it was looked into properly when it was brought up even though at the time it was you know they seen the dude abusing kids and let it go but when the actual authorities, the higher authorities found out they did something about it. So compare that with what I'm doing now. There's other, a lot of people who have brought up this sexual abuse. Austin is one of them, where they get away with qualified immunity now. So it's because the, most of the kids that are in Adobe now, the 95% or more probably, are black, brown, or, or, or Native American. That's the thing. They just, the Arizona is just throwing us away because they don't, they don't give us about some little brown kid, you know, who's got no money, you know, like, it reminds me of uh, something I heard on the radio a long time ago when little Tiffany goes missing, if it's a little white girl or something, you know, the, the nation's in an uproar, we need to find this Tiffany. But what about all the little Aishas and, and whatnot that went missing? They never get reported. Their faces don't because they're little black girls and, eh, you know, like, who cares? But I think that's still what goes on. It's, it's part of the institutional racism that is predominant in Arizona facilities. And now we are the first part of a conversation with James Kilgore. I'm going to introduce James very briefly. He is an activist, a researcher and writer based in Urbana, Illinois, where he has lived since paroling from prison in 2009. He is the director of the Challenging Ecarceration Project at Media Justice, 
and the co-director of First Followers Reentry Program in Champaign, Illinois. And for those of you who don't know, Champaign and Urbana are joined more or less at the hip. Uh, James is the author of five books, including the award-winning Understanding Mass Incarceration. So James, thanks for asking me to talk about your new book uh, with you. And thanks to the fantastic people at Haymarket for providing this platform, especially to uh, Rachel and John and all of the people who behind the scenes make things work. And thank you finally to the New Press for publishing this important title. So James, tell us, how did you come to write this book? What uh, happened? Uh, well, thanks, thanks, Ruthie. And uh, I also wanna express my thanks to Haymarket, to John and Rachel, and also to the New Press. Um, for organizing this and making this uh, making this happen. It's exciting to be able to chat to you, Ruthie. We haven't been able to talk for a while. Yes. <laughs> COVID, <laughs> the COVID uh, penalties that we pay. Um, so, I mean, I wrote this book to tie together a few threads of my own experience and uh, both in terms of incarceration, electronic monitoring, but also participating in movements over the years. I mean, at the smallest scale, the book is about, it's a critique of electronic monitoring that draws on my experience of being on a year, on a monitor for a year as a condition of my parole, but also on the stories of dozens of other people who have been on electronic monitors who I've interviewed as part of the Challenging Incarceration Project at Media Justice, as well as in my local community, people coming in through our reentry program. And for me, those stories are the most powerful evidence as to why EM is not an alternative to incarceration, but why it's an alternative form of incarceration and a particularly pernicious one at that. As probably most people on this call are aware, the use of EM is rapidly expanding. We need to stop that. But as you also know, Ruthie, I'm not a criminal justice reformer. I'm not a policy wonk. <laughs> I'm an abolitionist and a lifelong anti-capitalist of various stripes. So. I decided to write this book to place electronic monitoring in a bigger context. That's why I chose this probably slightly odd title, Understanding Ecarceration, not Understanding Electronic Monitoring, because it's about much more than that. So for me, ecarceration, which is a term I borrowed from Malkia Devitt Cyril, with, with their permission, of course, it covers a wide range of technologies of punishment and control that we have to confront from electronic monitoring to license plate readers, to drones, to facial recognition, to risk assessment tools, to surveillance cameras, to weaponized databases. And like electronic monitoring, these technologies are often presented as reforms, as tools to make a better society. But in most cases, they do the opposite. They deprive people of liberty. They form a technological system of oppression that especially targets black people, migrants, and other people of color. But as I show in the book also, this is a global system that tracks Palestinian youth in Gaza, black people on pretrial release in Kailicha in South Africa, as surely as it is monitoring black people like Mohawk Johnson, who's been sitting under 24-7 house arrest in Chicago on an ankle shackle for a year and a half. So EM is interwoven to all these technologies. And I think the, the, the probably a crucial piece is that all the data from these 
technologies, technologies are meeting up in the cloud where data never sleeps, where it's constantly moving to deepen systems of control and punishment, as well as, of course, make money. So those are the two descriptive parts of the book, but I also aim to do more than just describe. I will, hopefully it'll help mobilize people to push back against the expanding power of technology to punish and control. And I've outlined some important steps taken by organizations like the Chicago Community Bond Fund, the Detroit Community Technology Project, Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, Survived in Punishment, just to name a few. But I hope the book will trigger our imaginations to create other paths to transforming society by organizing human beings and building organizations and communities based on ties of solidarity and to resist the rise of fascism that we are confronting. And I want to just add that, you know, a lot has changed even in the years since I finalized, you know, the text for that book. So, so, I mean, it becomes actually a work in progress. This is a complicated moment with no easy formulas. I've put out a few ideas, but there's a lot more work to do. Yeah. Well, that's a great overview, James. And I just want to encourage people who might, sorry, there's always a siren somewhere. <laughs> people who might feel um, that the torrent of, of um, uh, connected activities that James just presented us with is so overwhelming that we don't know where to start. But if I'm understanding you, James, and certainly if I'm understanding my seven decades on the planet doing the kind of work that we've done together side by side, it is that if things are so complicated, it means there are many, many places to start to do the work. And in your book, James, in your very straightforward prose and clear explanations, you reveal, as you just described, how electronic shackles relentlessly expand, expand the police state into every corner of vulnerable people's lives. So these shackles then are draining people. They're draining time and they're draining money from individuals who wear them. And they are connecting a profile of many individuals into groups, as you just exemplified by talking about what happens in South Africa and Palestine and elsewhere. And incarceration also sucks resources from households, from communities by outsourcing jail time and jail space to people's homes. So all of these things are happening at once. And so companies and law enforcement agencies reap the revenue. And here is something that I would love to talk with you a bit more about, and that is to understand that if we're going to follow the money, we have to follow all of it, not just some of it. And it is very clear that law enforcement, whether it is occupied occupation of Palestine or police forces in South Africa or elsewhere or law enforcement in Chicago or New York is getting bigger too, even as corporations are as parasites or innovators participating in incarceration. So I wonder if you maybe could talk a little bit about the second part of the book, 
in which you talk through, again, from ankle shackles to the surveillance state. If you could take us through your thinking so that we can see the connection from one to the next, to the next, those dots. Sure. So, I mean, I kind of structured the book to move, maybe if you want to say spatially from the ankle, you know, to the community, to the, to the, to the state, you know, to the kind of, to the borders and to the kind of global political, global political economy. So I think, I, I think it's, I think it's important the, the, the connection that you've made there between the state and the private corporations. And a lot of people, when they hear about electronic monitoring and they hear that someone is paying $10 a day to be on an electronic monitor, they want to just go after the company. And if we get the companies out of this, we'll have dealt with the, with the situation. But the companies have to operate in tandem with the state. The state is the one that hires them, contracts them, and uses this, this technology. So we have to keep that, we have to keep in mind that this is a political project. And that's why we find these companies, it's interesting, for example, that two of the larger electronic monitoring companies in the US, Supercom and Atenti, are based in Israel. And they talk about how they experiment with their technology on Palestinians. I mean, I'm just using that as an example to show how these things are connected. The other part that I think is really important is the cloud, is the fact that when, when electronic monitors moved in the early 2000s from being radio frequency devices that merely told people, told authorities whether someone was at home, to GPS tracking devices that recorded people's location and then later was able to send that information to the cloud, all of a sudden we have all these databases coming from all different sources being combined, being used in algorithmic calculations to control and punish targeted populations. So, so that's what we see when we look at the at what's happening, say, at, you know, with the technology that's being used at the in the southern border of the United States. We've, we've seen some great work by Mihente and Just Futures Law looking at the ways in which these massive databases have been gathered to track people, but they also use the electronic monitors to, to find out where they're working, to carry, out to carry out raids and so forth. So all of these things come together. And the last point I wanna make about this is that it's important to recognize, I mean, Edward Snowden has told us that the NSA is capturing everybody's data, woo, woo, woo. And that's great, I'm, I thank him a lot for doing that. But also we have to recognize that this data impacts different people in different ways. So what I'm arguing, I mean, I use the term the criminalized sector of the working class to say that this is the sector that's not only uh, has their data grabbed, but this data is being used to, to punish them, to cur curtail their very survival, whether they're in child protection services, whether they're in, in juvenile justice courts, whether they're in immigration systems. So, those are some of the ways in which that connects. I'm sure there's more to add on to that. Thank you to everyone who helped with the show. Speaking of, KiteLine could always use more help. Our show is run entirely by volunteers. If you'd like to help with prisoner correspondence, interviews, news, or social media, please send us an email at kiteline at wfhb.org. 
This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.